Big thanks to our two sponsors for this episode, our friends at King Canine, providing pet owners with the highest quality organic hemp products for pets available on the market. Bringing joy to pet owners nationwide, helping them keep their four-legged family members healthy and happy. Use the coupon code MURF15 at their website, kingcaninewellness.com, K-I-N-G-K-A-N-I-N-E, wellness.com. The Bill Murphy Show is also underwritten by Zapidi, makers of the Pro 4K HDR media player, and the rest of their line, providing massive media storage capability and stunning high-definition playback of virtually every audio and video codec. Home theater and surround sound music enthusiasts alike need to check out all the modern products available from Zapidi. Visit them at zapidi.us.com. The Bill Murphy Show. The stories behind the music. Yes, we are back for a new season for 2021, our 11th year. Over 200 shows in our archives now. Episodes always available at BillMurphyShow.com. Thanks for liking and sharing. Welcome to many new followers who joined our Facebook page yesterday after the announcement of the new season. Big names in music and sound coming this season, I promise. So... I've done a couple of hundred interviews on this show so far at this point, and I feel like it's all been a warm-up in anticipation of getting to interview this guy. I feel like there should be some fanfare for him. But Alan, I guess our little original rock instrumental theme track will have to suffice. <laughs> um, I would recommend the opening of the Turn of a Friendly Card album. How's that? That's pretty fanfare <laughs> This music we're using here. You know, in 10 years, I've just realized I've never acknowledged the guys on this uh, Bill Murphy Show theme song. One of the original projects that I ever produced with my brother Steve, quick mention now, Steve's playing drums and acoustic guitar on that, Mark Knight on the bass, Dan Lombardi and Mike Klein on acoustic guitar, and the great James Paul Wisner on electrics there. We did that about 20 years ago, and I've never given those guys proper credit, much less any royalties for that, so there you go. (laughs) Um, you, you should mention that Steve, your brother, also played with me. He played in, played in my band for quite a few years. Yes, he did. And there is a thing that you did with Steve that I sort of got involved with that we'll, I want to talk about later in the show as well. Um, but now Alan Parsons joins us to do the kickoff of the new season straight from Abbey Road Studios in London. <laughs> Just play along. Well, uh, it, it seems to be fashionable to tell lies right now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It would be normal, but uh, <laughs> I say the United States. It's, it should, I think, should be renamed the Un-United States right now. Uh, <laughs> I don't even. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> but maybe there's. Oh God, a... I'm probably going to have a machine gun pointing at me. Having said that. Oh no 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 no! Please. <laughs> I thought we could just do a little theater of mind and pretend you're calling from Abbey Road. But actually, in reality, you're calling from quite the facility. I was looking up uh, some stuff and saw that you've, as recently as, if I'm getting this right, three or four years ago, constructed a new studio in your pro- on your property out in Santa Barbara? Yes, I did. Um, I only had a, a, a fairly sort of makeshift home studio before, before we built this one. This is, you know, this is in a dedicated building. Uh, it's got a full-blown... Uh, 32-channel analog console and um, lots of nice mics and a big Pro Tools rig. It's, 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 a, it's a real fun place to be. It's, it's and great. I know I have a lot of technical folks listening, so I, would you mind like bragging a little bit and getting into a little bit of the guts of what's going on there? What, what is part of your new studio that you're like most impressed with? And 
uh, most proud to have there? Well, I, I think it's the console. Um, it's uh, anybody who knows anything about uh, recording will know the name Rupert Neve. Oh, of course. Um, and uh, it's his latest creation. It's called the uh, 5188 console. I have 32 channels of it, and it sounds magnificent. And, Not uh, only am I familiar with it, but it gave me goosebumps when you said it. It's great. And the, the guy is still incredibly alert and alive, uh, well into his 90s. Is he really? So you still get that direct communication with him. He asks you for feedback on how the board's doing and that kind of stuff. Yes, we've 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 chatted to each other. Yeah, uh, and I've I've told him how pleased I am. Certainly, man. I'm telling you, just as I get this going, it's so great to be involved in a music discussion. A huge relief from all the politics in the world that is taking all of our, our conversations away from us. Politics and diseases. <laughs> Obviously, I wanted to touch on a lot of the effects that the global situation's having on your career but uh i i imagine having your studio on your premises uh it couldn't have slowed you down that much as, as long as far as well, the studio work goes well i i haven't been having any um any resident uh, or visiting musicians the only um, the only guy that uh, has been coming here to work is my uh, my assistant noah who is um, totally locked down and it's it's like we're family. We're locked down together. So, oh wow, not a bad place to be locked down, right? Right. And uh, I mean, he 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 goes home. He he doesn't stay at the, he doesn't stay at the studio. Although he could if he wanted to. But uh, no, we're playing very 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 safe. And um, we've been mixing been mixing some uh, live shows from last year, uh, in the hope that we can get those released uh, early early this year. Uh, I've been saying early next year for a very long time, so now right. I realize it's this year. <laughs> We're already there, <laughs> exactly. We everything sort of shifted to remote work after this whole situation um, subsides. I have a feeling that a lot of this remote recording and offsite collaboration that people are doing will, will stick a little bit, and we may do a little less in-person collaboration and more. Uh, online is that a a good or a bad thing? And how do you see that situation? Um, it, it's certainly very true. Um, the the only uh, issue I have with it uh, is in the early stages when when you're laying down a, a track with a band, you know that it, it, that cannot be done uh, remotely. It has to be uh, you know they have to be in the same room. But 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 you know doing solos, doing vocals, doing you know ancillary overdubs to existing tracks that works great over the internet. The, I mean, the, the, yeah. guy, the guy could be in, or the gal could be in Sydney, Australia, for all I, for all I care, and we can still uh, make it work. But the pre-production process in the creation stage—that's a, a, a very important thing that's going to suffer. Well, you know, um, the the vaccine seems to be penetrating into uh, into the world in general, and uh, I'm hoping that it won't be much later than say March, April, when I'm I'm ready to actually. Uh, having been vaccinated, hopefully, to, to invite people to, to come and record. Well, that sounds like a good timetable to me. I want to get into this amazing um, stage that you've gotten to in your career where you are paying it forward, my man. It's the Alan Parsons Art and Science of Sound Recording. I stumbled upon you guys at uh, the NAMM show in 2018, which happened to be the first NAMM show I ever went to after all these years, but spent some time there. And I was in awe at what was going on. This, so that I, I'm, a, I think, did it get started a little shortly before that? Um, it's actually only been operational for two years now. Okay. 
Oh, so it was in the planning stages at that part. Well, there were already some multi-track sessions going around then. I learned about this at the show. I got on the mailing list and I got all the info on it. It's a dream come true for engineers and producers. You actually get to get your hands on multi-track sessions from songs you've produced. Um, up to 60 tracks in a session sometime. I couldn't imagine sitting in front of those. And then uh, I guess it works towards you collaborate with the students while they work on sessions and you tell them how it's done. Well, the, 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 we actually have a, a recording course now, which is you know, which is rivaling uh, the likes of um, the the big the big entities like uh, Full Sail and um, SAE and all SAE, those, right? the School of Audio Engineering. Um, we've got a very reasonably priced uh, uh, online course, which which is which is doing incredibly well. I'm I'm very pleased about it. And I think, um, I think I'm signing up, by the way, right after this. Oh, interview. good. All right. <laughs> well. Uh, you play your cards right. I might be able to comp you on that, but we'll oh, see. Oh, man. Okay. There, <laughs> there we go. More goosebumps. All right. So the beauty of this thing to me is that it's your legacy, your technique, your standards are are living on in the new generations of kids doing music production. I think that's the most beautiful thing about it. There's, there's still some art and skill that was born decades before these guys were and some of the elements of that will be in their work now yeah i mean it's um it's an effort on my part and and uh, my my partner in the project his name is julian colbeck um we, we felt it was a need for the industry and we we both have large amounts of experience uh, you know since literally the the uh mid 60s um to bring to the table and you know i enjoy giving back it, it's uh it's 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 been really really fun and we we've done uh, live live masterclass sessions you know in in conjunction with the uh the dvd series and the and the book um it is a book and a and a dvd series and and now it's a an online course and and also a um an educational uh, uh, that you can you can buy a, an educational license, which means which makes it very easy to access any any particular part of the nine hours or so that we uh, <laughs> that we wow. recorded for. for the correct videos. me if I'm wrong. If someone wants to sign up for this, basically they could start by purchasing one of these multi-track sessions, playing around with it, and then if they decide to do the course, that money that they paid for the session is a credit towards the course anyway. So. I, th right. I think you're right. Um, it, certainly, uh, if they if they bought the book or the or the DVD series, that that would be applied. Uh, gotcha. As as, gotcha. as a credit. I think there's a lot of people listening to this that that are going to want to be all over that. So I urge you to take a look. We put a link to that. If you're accessing this show via the BillMurphyShow.com, we'll have an, a link there for you to access it. And can I can I shout it out real quick? It's it's ArtAndScienceOfSound.com. Uh, ArtAndScienceOfSound.com. Sort of in the same light, you've been leave, lived and worked on both sides of the recording industry's evolution of analog to digital. You start when you got started, um, it was a hundred percent analog. And I sort of got to do that in radio too. I went through it on such a smaller scale, but it was a, a pure analog when I started and I had to learn how to use Pro Tools as I, you know, to continue doing production in radio. So I went through that change. How, how did the changes from analog to digital go for you? Obviously, it, it shows in your work that it sounds like it was a seamless thing, but I'm very curious about 
little details about that. Can you talk generally about that whole evolution and how it affected your career? Well, you're, you're right. When I when I first started at, at Abbey Road in um, in '69, um, everything was very much analog. Uh, eight track was actually quite a new thing then. Um, a lot of sessions still taking place were were on four track, and um, even even straight to stereo. I mean, <laughs> it, it's hard to imagine now nowadays, but you know, people did. Uh, particularly orchestral or jazz or light music, they would record literally straight to the stereo. And at the end of the session, you had a master tape. So uh, it's almost unheard of <laughs> these days. Uh, but um, the, 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 the transfer to digital was gradual. It went from eight to six, eight track to 16 track, then to 24 track. Then they figured out a way of synchronizing two 24 track analog machines. So we effectively had 48 tracks. And um, around not not long after that came the uh, the, uh, the 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 idea that you could mix a, a, a session to uh, a stereo digital file for release on CD, and that that was that was the earliest uh, the earliest incarnation of of compact disc was was the, this right. this system where you uh, actually recorded your final mix in digital form. It was called the uh, Sony 1610. Aha, right. And that soon got uh, updated to a, a format called 1630. Um, then came multi-track digital machines, um, notably by Sony. Um, I, I purchased a pair of um, Sony 24-track digital machines at colossal expense. I mean, it, it pains me to... to to, to tell you that it was probably a, around $200,000 to buy those machines. I remember the first two-track Atari digital uh, recorder that came into the radio station in 1992. And I remember the tech setting it up and I said, wow, so where does the audio go? How much storage does it have? He goes, this thing has 100 megabytes of storage. <laughs> and, and we're, I think we're it wearing costs, that much on our wrists right I now, I think right? it costs like $15,000 too. You couldn't even get like one track in that now at, at you know, at 96K. But um, <laughs> I was curious to know more specifically, because I mean, I guess we could go through the evolution of... I'm sure it would be a detailed conversation about how long you hung on to your analog tools before you jumped ship. But I get the feeling from listening to what you did is you evolved as the technology went. You sort of embraced it as it came. And basically with each new record that came out, we were hearing sort of a showcase of new gear that had just come out. Is that accurate? Uh, reasonably accurate. I mean, uh, the the digital uh, transition for that that really affected the whole industry kept came you know pretty much in the mid mid to late 90s i think mm -hmm. um but um i i always felt that my my best work was on a console with real faders with real eq with real uh you know real uh sends to uh, echoes and reverbs and stuff mm -hmm. um i did make an album totally in the box uh, that that album was called A Valid Path. If if you don't know what in the box means, your listeners um, they do will, will <laughs> need to be need to be told that means you don't actually have a console. You just do do the whole thing with a computer and a mouse. Right. And uh, I I 
I respected that uh, a lot of records were being made that way, but I, I enjoyed that experience less than the the you know the other work I'd done with it with real consoles, real faders, real. Wow, completely with a mouse, or you didn't even have a controller uh, board or anything. You know, um, in in the early years, I I think I probably had one uh, controller with like two faders on it. Uh huh. Um, that you could, you know, uh, assign to a, a track in uh, yeah, yeah. Cubase. I was using Cubase back then. Um, but uh, Cuba, Cubase is still a great program, so, so is uh, Logic. But uh, I've, uh, largely because of my assistant Noah's uh, expertise in it, I've, I've really uh, stuck to Pro Tools for most of the, most of the projects I'm, I've been doing. Oh, that's I've been the first lately. I've ever heard of uh, you using Pro Tools. I know you were a Cubase guy. I thought for a while you were a Logic guy, no? Uh, for a very brief period, I was okay. a Logic guy. Okay, all right. So... I, I, this is really where really I wanted to get into the whole analog digital thing. I'm so curious when I get new gear and I play with these new plugins as they come in, I'm very curious, how does it work out? How does it translate in your opinion? I think you would probably be the, the, the greatest authority to ask this question. Do you use basically when you, when you come across a virtual reproduction in the digital world of a piece of analog gear you used 40 years ago, 50 years ago, does does it does it translate well? Are you turning the same knobs and getting the same settings, or are you doing completely different things in those digital models? I I make use of the the digital models, particularly um, the recent uh, hu huge amount of uh, orchestral samples that have become available. Um, the, the people have gone to an, an enormous efforts to uh, you know to record every instrument with a different mic, with different distance, with different notes. Right. Um, that, that, oh, I know that, that sampled stuff is fantastic. The drums, the drum programs that are out there are just staggering. They're amazing. But uh, you know, I, I still take the attitude: there's no substitute for a great drummer, no matter no matter what the sound. If it's a great drummer, he'll he'll he will sound great. Of course, um, absolutely. Ten ten or twenty takes from a good drummer is a whole lot better than a day of drawing in MIDI notes. <laughs> Definitely going to come out a lot better. Uh, but I guess how about, more. How about two takes of a drum? <laughs> <laughs> I know somebody that could do stuff in one or two takes. Um, Your brother, for example. Exactly. Exactly. I want to get into that because we did. Uh, I did get involved with something with you later. I'm just teasing that till later. I just want to stick with this for just one more bit. A little more geeky tech talk. Did you? you so when you turn the digital. Um, I'm just guess I'm wondering if you if you've had any aha moments where you got a hold of a piece of equipment, let's say like a, a an 1176 compressor, and you're using it in a plug-in version. Is it how accurate does it sound to you? And are the are the settings that you would use in that situation basically the same exact thing you were doing back in the on the real model? Oh well, you know what I didn't answer your previous question. Um, that uh, you know the 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 digital recreations of analog gear as as plugins some of them some of them are absolutely amazing um i particularly favor uh universal audios uh, uh plate reverbs uh which i adore um there are some good uh, uh chambers from abbey road as well uh, out there um some some wonderful um eq and uh compression programs but they got it. So what I guess I'm asking you is, you would know they got it right on a lot of this gear, didn't they? They got it right on on a lot of it, and uh, if they get it right, I use it. Right. <laughs> but when they when they uh, 
when it's compromised or the uh, the original is substantially better, I would I would always go for the original. And you're using the UA stuff, huh? That's yeah. I, I have a very good uh, relationship with UA. They uh... see. I didn't know that. I became a UA guy last year after so many years of hanging on to my digi design stuff. But I I I'm blown away by this thing. I got the little Twin X. I'm I'm just amazed with the the AD converters in that thing. I I've never heard audio uh you know this clear before in my life you know digital audio is is still really quite young um you know it it, it hasn't um existed more than what what is it 25 30 years um and it and it's getting better all the time um converters uh from you know analog to digital and back again are hugely better than they were um we have a superior audio uh, we have superior audio file formats, vastly superior to, to CD. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a shame they haven't really uh, released a, you know, a, a, a tangible product that that uh, is is better than CD. I mean, other than Blu-ray. I mean, Blu-ray, um, you can get uh, some really good audio off off Blu-ray. Right, because it can hold so much information. You can get giant files on there. Right, and and with with video, if if if, it, if you have video for it, um, I'm the um, I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm mixing a, a couple of live shows from Europe. We're we're mixing them in uh, both stereo and surround. Mm. Um, and you use with, the, the with, UA hardware to do your surround mixing? Oh yeah. Oh, sure. that's fine. That's what I thought because, like I said, I'm not crazy when I say that. The the it is a a very very stark. Uh, clear resolution out of the out of those converters. I'm actually using Apogee converters, Symphony converters. Oh, uh, okay, even better. But, I see. Uh, but okay, just again to 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 uh, r- rather than you know do the plug-in on each track in the box, I I bring the I bring the tracks up on the console and use a send, you know, an aux send from the console to go to the plug-in, which I just runs you. on its own separately and comes back analog on its own so it's, it's just like an original just like it would have been back in the day and, and it's a joy it's a joy to do it that way so on that note i guess i'll just briefly tell you what's going on i i know i'm late to the bo- late to the party but after years of sort of dabbling and getting a little curious about surround sound i don't think i ever really heard it properly until this year when i got some matching monitors for the rear of my studio my room is nicely treated and i've i don't even have a player i've been managing to take the discs uh extract the audio off them put them in a pro tool session and run them out of the four outputs of my my apollo twin x and do a phantom center channel and it's it's i know that sounds not very traditional but i'm telling you i'm i'm experiencing some amazing things over the last few months i've got about a a couple of dozen pieces that i've listened to including some of yours and um it's amazing it's just a a pretty um just i i I couldn't believe i I waited this long to do it you know i I don't i don't object to what what you you're doing at all because i i feel that the sense channel is is just uh an unnecessary appendage to a surround system ah. if you um if you analyze any of the surround mixes i've done in the past you'll you'll notice the sense channel is almost almost absent we, i i just stick stuff in there to make sure that people don't think it's faulty but uh i did know. notice that well because i can see the waveforms now when i pull them up and i did notice that when i listened to ammonia avenue and then i i also wanted to get right into eye in the sky because you won this this Grammy Award in 2019 
paper the best immersive album and i did get to experience that just a couple of months ago and it is just it's just staggering and well and completely deserving of that uh, grammy award how nostalgic was that for you to pull that out and i guess a two-part question what kind of shape were the tapes in <laughs> well the, the the grammy actually came for eye in the sky which that's what was, i said um, what did i say you said uh, Ammonia Avenue, but... Oh, no, no, no. Eye in the Sky. I will edit that out and correct that, but go ahead. <laughs> <All right. laughs> um, yes, it, it was a, a lovely thing to, uh, to get that, uh, get that uh, nomination and uh, eventually to win. Um, I was with the band on a, on a cruise ship uh, when the news came through that we'd won the, uh, won the Grammy. And we were, at, we were actually up on the, uh, on the, on the deck of the ship with our life jackets on, <laughs> listening to the uh, Grammy Awards on, on, on our phones. And uh, there was a big, a big cheer went up, you know, around for all the, all the people standing around me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, that's fantastic. Which was fun. You've always sort of been a, uh, I, I, there's been a mystique with the Alan Parsons Project. Just to give you a little background on me, the first time I ever really laid down or sat down and absorbed an Alan Parsons album was the Pyramid album right after it had been released. And we didn't have the internet. We didn't have quick access to go to Wikipedia and look you up. We, you, there weren't many photos. There wasn't any tour. Uh, you didn't hear your interviews of you on the radio. You had this uh, sort of uh, image of being just this mysterious guy behind the curtain. Was that something that was intentional to, to sort of help the brand of the Alan Parsons project? Um, I, I really don't think it was intentional. I, um, I just became a, uh, a very uh, unphotographed, very unrecognizable person <laughs> for whatever reason. Um, we, it's not as if I shied away from the camera. Um, uh, of course, we, didn't, we never played live uh, as the Alan Parsons project, only only in later years as the Alan Parsons Live Project. Right. But um, I, I don't know. I, I, I've just, for some reason, been very anonymous for m most of my life. Even now. I mean, even now, people don't seem to... Does it occur to you that maybe in retrospect that, that worked out in favor for sort of keeping the mystique of the Alan Parsons Project in the early years, at least? Well, it means I could go and shop at Costco without being recognized. Exactly right. <laughs> See? I knew there was an agenda behind that. <laughs> He wanted his grocery shopping to be private. <laughs> um, and then, so as my brother worked with you, we, again, this is sort of touches on the man behind the curtain thing. You did a live in Madrid record and you were at home mixing it. My brother happened to be visiting in Florida at the time. And you had him redo, because of a technical situation, you had him redo a vo couple of vocal parts on the record, and we did them here in my studio. And I'm, I guess I'm very proud to say there's some audio that was recorded here that ended up on one of your albums. But can you talk a little bit about that? It, that falls into the remote thing, but specifically, if I need to remind you, I think there was something going on with some bleed in the snare drum in the live recording that you had to fix. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, having a drummer slash vocalist is is one of the uh, nightmares that a, a live a live recording engineer has to has to deal with. Um, right. Drums are enormously loud. Voices are comparatively quiet. So um, what you have to uh, deal with is an enormous amount of drums coming into the vocal mic and spoiling the sound of the drums and and the sound of the vocal. 
Um, so the technology exists to uh, to play the tracks and and have the singer re-record uh, any problem lines or or problem songs. And uh, you know you also have the luxury of doing it a few times to get the best uh, the best right. take. Um, a, a lot of li- a lot of so-called live albums out there have been uh, post-produced, shall we say, with such things. Frampton Comes Alive comes to mind. Yeah, I'm not. I that was a long time ago that came out. I, I, I'm not actually. I think what happens is, and I and now that I'm actually saying this, I'm remembering if it was either a conversation with Peter Frampton or somebody that worked with him. It was just that we couldn't get over the fact that that was such an amazing performance that was captured live, I guess we all just thought it had to have been doctored. Oh, I think that, uh, you know, that long um, guitar solo with the, with the mouth thingy that, um, that he became famous for, I, I think that was real. Yeah, oh, uh, that whole section was at least. But, I, you know, I guess you have to wonder sometimes. And, and also Winterland being a very small building and the crowd sounded like it was about 20,000 people. But, I mean, I'm not, it's, that's just part of the fun of creating live albums and, you know. No, I've never had to do that. I've never had to... Uh... Uh, add crowd noise. Add, add, add a bigger crowd because they didn't make enough noise. <laughs> One more little thing about the surround sound. I did an A-B comparison a couple of months ago in this little surround sound playground that I've been in the last couple of months. It's, it's a, a bit of an addiction, actually, and um, <laughs> it's interrupting my productivity. But I, I am enjoying it a lot, and part of that, I did an A-B comparison of the James Guthrie 2003 5-1 mix of Dark Side of the Moon that you did, that, that he did, and then I, a couple days later, I got to listen to your original 1974 quad mix. They're both beautiful in, in different ways. With yours, you get the original production of the album, but with a much bigger and wider placement of everything. I just, I want to know how you feel about what my interpretation of your quad mix from 74. This is back in your early, early days. I feel like doing that quad mix gave you an opportunity to turn the pan pots out of the uh, peripheral places that you wanted to put them in the original stereo mix, but we were restricted. You really kept the integrity of the album instead of creating a whole new production. Well, I'm pleased to hear you say that. I think it was James Guthrie's intention to do the same. But um, I think um, because uh, Dark Side of the Moon was uh, essentially focused upon a uh, at least a four-channel or quadraphonic release at the time it was recorded, um, I think uh, you know it, it it deserved to be uh, to have all four corners used. You know, like, like we spread the the money sounds across all four speakers and the clocks and everything. They they were all ready to go in in quadraphonic on the master tapes on the multi-track master tapes. Um, I, I think um, some criticism was. Uh, made on on James Guthrie's mix that it was uh, you know not not spacious enough and a, a little bit safe and you know uh, I I heard it described as stereo on four speakers uh, his version ah uh, I, I it's a little more than that but I I wouldn't <laughs> go that far to say it but I think he he was safe I think you use the word safe in there sometimes you just you got a hold of a masterpiece it's your masterpiece I'm sure some. Uh, hesitation comes in there to do anything that daring for me the worst part of it was that i i was not asked to uh to do the the, the mix in in the 
you know, the, the latest version, whatever it is, 90, what year was it, 95 or something? Well, it was 2003, actually. Oh, right. and, and I can tell you, in case you don't keep track of this kind of thing, uh, as a, in my uh, consumption of this surround sound that I'm doing, I, I've been reading a lot of the forums and people's opinions on this, and there's a lot of people making comparisons between the two. And almost across the board, everybody thinks yours is a way stellar thing. I mean, it's just, it's the original, and you just can't beat the original. So just so you, just so you know, <laughs> people seem to prefer yours over that even though it's harder to find. And um, it, it has certain elements missing. There's a couple of, uh, couple of uh, dialogue. There's one extra, uh, one extra saxophone riff at the end of the saxophone solo in Us and Them before the vocals start that's not on the original album. Oh, really? <laughs> on oh, yours. On yours. That was, that, that was my mistake. I, 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 didn't, I didn't realize I'd done that. You weren't supposed to leave that in there. Da -da 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 -da. It was that little tag at the end. Oh, uh, right. Right. Anyway, I, in case you didn't think I listened to it in that much detail. <laughs> but, um, you, clearly, you clearly did. <laughs> I clearly did. Are you going to, can you or are you planning to do Pyramid in Surround? I'm planning to do all the albums. Um, I'm hoping iRobot will be the next one. Oh, wow. I'm just waiting for, um, you know, for, uh, from the, the estate of Eric Wolfson to, to, to come up with the, uh, the master tapes and bonus tracks and so on. But I'm, I'm very hopeful it will happen, uh, you know, maybe during the course of this year. That would be, I, I would like to see that happen. And I know it's your work, it can, it's your life, and it takes up everything you do, but do you take time to sit in your studio and listen to surround per mixes? Do you, how, what do you enjoy if you do that at all? Um, I love listening to surround. Um, <laughs> I, I would consider my competitor in uh, surround sound mixing to be uh, Stephen Wilson. That is, that's, that's who I was going to start talking about next, I know. <laughs> but uh, but he's, he's, he's a, a good friend, and we've worked together. Um, I thought he did a very nice job on on uh, Tears for Fears and oh yeah, the uh, I think he did a Jethro Tull album as well. So I can picture Alan Parsons sitting in his studio listening to Stephen Wilson surround mixes. <laughs> He's very talented, uh, not only as a musician songwriter but also as as an engineer. He's uh -huh. he's very very gifted. Talk about Eric Wolfson. We lost him in two thousand nine. How I'd love to hear you give a description of his talent and how you remember him. I mean, the, the years that we spent together making Alan Parsons Project albums, remember it was just a recording entity. We didn't play live. Um, they were really good fun times. I mean, we, 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 had a, we had a lot of fun making those records. I mean, even though they come, come over as occasionally being a bit dark and serious, we we actually had a, 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 a real laugh sometimes making making those records, and uh, I look upon those years very favorably. We 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 were good friends. Um, he he was a very talented songwriter, no question. And uh, and he sang lead my, vocals on more of your songs than people even realize. I think. Yeah, that would have probably been at his insistence. Right. <laughs> Oh, I see. Oh, so there was a little bit of that, a little bit of rock star friction going on. There was a little bit, a little bit of that. I, I, um, I didn't uh, always feel that his his, his vocal performance on on uh, all the songs that got released with his voice on were necessarily <laughs> the right voices. I, I didn't think, I didn't think "Don't Answer Me" was was a his greatest moment. 
Oh, okay. Well, there's some there's some uh, inside information there from Alan Parsons about that. He, I mean, he did a great job on Eye in the Sky. He did a great job on Eye in the Sky and um, and on time. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people's favorite song by the Alan Parsons Project, and it's just a, that's a masterpiece. I wanted to try to get you to talk about one of my favorite moments of something you've recorded and produced, kind of stuck with me my whole life musically. That little moment in the year of the cat where one guitar solo trails off and then the saxophone solo kicks in over the top of the rest at the end of that measure, there's a little pause and then it just shifts into the saxophone solo. It's just a a moment that always stirred me my whole life. I was just curious to know, was that a standout moment for you? And do you have other moments that kind of sonically stand out in your mind over the over your career little brief audio moments like that well the fact is that um the sax solo was was my idea it was going to, it, it would have been all different guitar solos there was an acoustic guitar solo an electric solo and uh, it probably would have been another electric solo if i hadn't come up with the idea of getting my good friend phil kenzie to come in and 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 play that that solo and um, I don't know, Al, Al, Al was sort of slightly taken aback at the suggestion of uh, putting a sax solo on. He said, saxophone, that's a jazz instrument. I don't do jazz. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, but uh, in the end, he loved it. And uh, the success speaks for itself. And uh, the, the uh, happy ending to the story is that Al took... took uh, that that uh, sax player Phil Kenzie on to join his band. And, oh, and, how and about he, that? That's a great story. Out, and then went out and so that live. so then I guess the answer is yes. That is somewhat of a little special moment for you then. Oh yeah, um, yes. I mean it, it, it's a, <laughs> it's a story I dine out on occasionally. You know, I was I was the guy that made Year of the Cat have the sax solo. So. And that's another surround sound release we get to look forward to. Very exciting. The end of March or so, the new 5-1 mix of Year of the Cat from Al Stewart. Speaking of saxophones, I was curious to know when Pink Floyd did Dark Side of the Moon, I believe that was the first time a saxophone was heard on one of their records, if I'm remembering correctly. And I'm wondering how the hardcore fans of Pink Floyd accepted that. You know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure I can answer that. Um... He was certainly a friend of the band, um, Dick Parry. Right. Um, I just don't think I remember. I could be wrong. And and there's probably Pink Floyd fans that are so angry at me right now going, there's saxophone on an earlier album, but I don't remember one right now. No, I don't either. <laughs> but I'm not saying it, 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 didn't, uh, it didn't happen. It may well It have just done. sounds like in retrospect, that would have been a kind of a daring move for Pink Floyd to do at that point. But that whole album was a daring move. Yeah, and then... They waited quite a while before using strings as well. Um, oh, that's true. There, there, I mean, there are no strings on Dark Side of the Moon, but there's lots of them on, on, on successive albums. You, you know, one, one, one um, fact about Dark Side of the Moon that is not often recognized is that Roger only sings one song, the final song. Every, everything else is David Gilmour. Oh, that's right. The lead vocal on Eclipse at the end is Roger, and that would be it. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a particular moment that guy described in Year of the Cat that that you take with you forever that you care you think was like sonically one of the best 
things you ever accomplished that s- sticks with you? I, I was I was pretty proud of the um, the uh, sound quality on, on on the first project album on Tales of Mystery. I felt that uh, it was one of my better one of my better uh, projects sound wise. Um, but in, in terms of satisfaction. Uh, probably the greatest moment was having two consecutive number one singles in the UK. Um, one, one with uh, Pilots, Magic, and that was um, taken over by a little-known band in America called Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel um, with, with one of their songs. So wait, a minute, two, two, wait a minute, two consecutive number ones? Yeah. Oh, wow, that I didn't know. That I should have known. That's a... That's a radio DJ trivia fact that got by me that I should know to this day. Shame well, it on was, me. It was the United Kingdom, not the United States. Well, that's true, but it's Alan Parsons' production, so I should have been all over that. That's, uh, that's something else to learn that. Not many people can say they did that. Maybe Quincy Jones can or a couple other guys, but that's about it. The um, One final thing. Being this uh, surround sound freak that I am, I mean, I'm I, I'm picturing you in your studio and you uh, your setup, your monitoring system for surround. Do you would you mind sharing what you're using uh, for monitors to do your surround mixes? And are you equipped all the way around with Dolby Atmos setup or just a five one? You know what? I'm not equipped for Dolby Atmos. I'm I'm trying to figure out whether I will take the plunge and you know basically d- dismantle. <laughs> to a large extent, the studio in order to accommodate it. Um, but the speakers I use for 5.1 are speakers I've had ever since uh, I left the UK. They are B&W, that's Bowers and Wilkins 802 uh, Nautilus speakers. Right. And uh, I've, I've never found anything that I prefer. So what are, you driving them, what are you driving them with? Um, when I'm in stereo, I drive them with a, a French amplifier called Deviele. Huh. Um, which is uh, a high-end hi-fi. Uh, Excuse me. That's <laughs> but um, for five-one, j- just for convenience, I I, I have a, a Yamaha. And it's a it's a reasonably high-end amp, uh, Yamaha amp, the consumer amp that that sounds fine. Oh wow! Just uh-huh. an integrated consumer amplifier. Okay, well that's cool because then you're hearing it basically close to however everybody's going to be hearing with it. It did a lot of surround. Did a lot of the art of surround sound get lost? in um, quote-unquote home theaters that really don't deserve to be called home theaters, the ones you can pay, you know, get for three fifty for a whole set at Best Buy, and and you got the little tiny satellite speakers coming from the corner in your ceiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not really the true way to, ex- to experience it. You really need to get full range coming from all around you. Um, did a lot of that get lost by an overuse of the term home theater? Sadly, home theater has come to mean exactly that. It's a movie theater, and uh, the people with home theaters are not giving enough attention to music, which um, which is terrific in in uh, in surround that that uh, especially good home theaters are capable of. Right. Uh, it's it's very sad, um, and uh, I, I I've been trying to popularize uh, music in in surround for for many years, but. You certainly have. Where I hope that we're not past the point of no return. Is this something that can uh, have a resurgence? And, and has the timetable been that it's? I don't even hate. I hate to say it that that it's the enthusiasm reached its peak and it's dying off. You know, um, 
the, the consumer is hungry for new technology all the time. Dolby Atmos is a perfect example. You know, it's, it's the new thing. Um, whether it will be accepted as a, a format that improved music forever, I doubt it. Right. Um, there, are, there are other new three-dimensional and immersive formats. Uh, uh, Sony has one. Um, and uh, the, the, there are, you know, the, there, there are always uh, various 3D audio uh, programs that, that, that work quite well. I mean, um, Waves have a good one um, mm -hmm. that I like particularly because it, 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 it's on headphones and when you, um, it, it will track your head movement so that when you turn around to face the back, oh, wow. the, the sound will move with you. So that, that's, that's, that's pretty clever. What about the sweet spot in 5.1 listening experiences? In the average size room, um, even at full range with the speakers at the, on the same plane all the way around and you're making sure that you got it set up, is, is how big is that sweet spot? Is, is 5.1 listening in, an, in a small to average size room a one-person experience? No, I've always maintained that um, 5.1 is entertaining Anywhere. I mean, you can be standing next to the back, back left speaker and it's still entertaining because you can, uh, you can analyze what's happening. Uh, in fact, I encourage people and, and you'll, you'll hear that from anybody who's att attended any of my masterclasses. I, I encourage people to walk around the room, see, see what's going on, see what, see what the placement is, you know, right. and, and it, and it, you know, it can be very revealing and very entertaining sometimes. I never thought of it that way. I felt trapped right in my little one square foot sweet spot. And I felt like I had to adjust my head all the time because I wanted to catch exactly the balance of what was going on. But you're right. I mean, you know, as, as an engineer, you have to respect the sweet spot, make sure that, you know, things are actually balanced. Right. Uh, but, but it's not so, necessary um, to experience the whole thing. You know, there, as right? a listener, I, I feel it's much less important. The music is the 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 sound is so discreet out of the individual channels anyway that when you do stand at the other side of the room, if you're by the back left, you can still hear what's going on in the front right. So that's right. And also the thing about five one that's so instantly immersive and so much of an oh wow factor is not only are you hearing the music coming from all sides of the room and balanced perfectly, but you're also getting twice the resolution at 96K in most cases. So I think there's a double whammy of, you know, giant soundscape coming at you in that respect. I agree. I agree. And uh, the, the, more, the more audio files that we can convince to, uh, you know, to respect higher sample rates, higher, higher um, bit rates, you know, um, the better as far as I'm concerned. And, and, what are you I, uh, I, What are you listening to and or working on musically right now that people should be alerted to? Um, two live shows. Um, one one uh, in Holland uh, in uh, the spring of last of last year when we were um, actually no it wasn't the spring of last year, spring of the previous year. Oh wow! We're in, uh, of course it was right. Um, it was. Uh, we did two shows, one in Holland one, and uh, uh, a full-blown symphonic uh, concert in, uh, in Tel Aviv. Uh, so I've been mixing those with, uh, with a view to releasing them uh, sometime soon this year. And then you're going to go right to iRobot and Pyramid, right, and get surround mixes of those to me ASAP? I, I, would, I would like to think that that would, uh, 
account for the first half of this year, <laughs> yes. And if you need an assistant engineer for Pyramid, I know that album back and forth, and I know everything that happens on there. So if you need any help, let me know. All right. Good to know. <laughs> Alan Parsons, thank you so much for spending time on my little podcast, man. It's great to talk to a legend. And you confirmed a lot of things that I was wondering and curious about. And I really, really appreciate it. And I know there's a lot of listeners that really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. You're most welcome, Bill. Thanks. And uh, uh, Happy New Year. And uh, let's all stay safe. And uh, may live shows... Uh, come back to the world sometime soon.